A quick warning. This episode is not suitable for younger listeners. Although we don't get too explicit, there are inevitable moments of several kinds of violence. So those of you with young friends with you or who are troubled by conversations about sexual violence, please, this is not the episode for you. We just thought you'd better know ahead of time. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. She was the subject of torture and the toast of the Italian art world. She painted lots of women, but was one of the few in her field. She was a Baroque painter, yet she made lots of money. Ten points from Hufflepuff for that pun, Susan. And let's meet Artemisia Gentileschi. The end. Let's talk about Artemisia Gentileschi. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1593, Elizabeth I began her final 10 years of rule. Henry IV ruled as the first Bourbon king of France, and that year, he converted to Roman Catholicism. In a sentence I never thought I'd ever say, using the polygon approximation method, a Flemish mathematician arrived at the 15th decimal point of pi. (laughs) I know. Holland granted a patent on a windmill with a crankshaft. Shakespeare wrote Venus and Adonis, the two gentlemen of Verona, Richard III, and he began the taming of the shrew. The Renaissance art period was kind of winding down and the Baroque was about to begin when, on July 8, 1593, Artemisia Gentileschi was born. Artemisia Gentileschi was born in Rome, the first child of the four of noted painter Orazio Gentileschi and his wife Prudentia. Artemisia was the only daughter in the family and the only one who showed both interest and talent in following Papa's path as an artist, which is sort of a bummer since you will not be surprised to learn that there was no training available for a woman, no legal apprenticeship in any profession, not just art. So Papa had to train her himself. Which actually worked out well because Papa at the time was a very well-known artist. He was the son of a Florentine goldsmith. He was originally from Pisa and his last name originally was Lomi until he moved to Rome and moved in with an uncle and kind of appropriated that uncle's last name of Gentileschi. Details of his early artistic training are kind of lost to history. But when he moved to Rome, that's when he kind of started to drop traceable breadcrumbs of his uh, life history. So he reminds me exactly of a teenager from the Midwest moving to L.A. in hopes of making it big. And man, it is too bad for him that he hadn't been born 100 years ago because Florence was right down the road. And that's where the action used to be. But Rome was the center of art and literature and politics and most importantly for the hopeful artist patrons. He started painting professionally like a lot of artists at the time in painting frescoes. Um, It's a painting done with water-based paint on wet or newly installed plaster walls. As the wall sets and dries, so does the paint. It was super popular during the time and they put it in a lot of churches and Vatican buildings and we know that Rome is full of both. So they these guys worked quite a bit. Now, Orazio's art was good, but it wasn't great. He was still learning. And Orazio did make a good career for himself, sort of a reliable series regular, to use L.A. terms, rather than a movie star, though he did run with some movie stars, in particular, the painter Caravaggio, 
who I so wish we could get into. Uh, you know what? Me too. We could probably put him on our roosters list. <laughs> well, the only reason <laughs> I'm going to get into him at all is that his style both revolutionized art mm-hmm. in total and influenced Artemisia's early work. But he was so naughty, like a Jack Sparrow with no conscience, if you can. I mean, come on. So, okay, get this. The Pope's private police force. And you know, in this time and in this place, the Pope is over the kings. The Pope is the man. The Pope is the boss. His personal private police force shows up at Caravaggio's doorstep and knocks on the door, which would make anyone else pee their pants, right? And they're like, we're here to talk to you about heresy. And here's his response. Heresy? I got 90 other things I did you could have come here for with more proof than this, but heresy? Okay, ask me your little questions. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously, I'm paraphrasing. I mean, there are yeah, 15,000 yeah. <laughs> pages of court documents about Caravaggio. Okay, this is Papa's friend. So he preferred offbeat and sort of low subjects, musicians, fortune tellers, and the like. And he sort of sneered at the style of painting people liked. Oh, the lovely figure with a certain item included so you could tell who it's supposed to represent. Ha, ha, ha. His basic response was, you sellouts can paint that Disney BS and it's not going to be me. I'm not your guy. (laughs) So when he got his first religious commission, he was sort of, you know, conflicted. um, And he did start painting in the expected way, sort of a nicely balanced composition. Everyone's elegant. Everyone's remote. It's called the Mannerist style. That's the painting style that Orazio started out painting. It's kind of like more arty than real lifey. But Caravaggio finally decided to let his freak flag fly because the final product broke everyone. Broke everyone. It's called the Martyrdom of St. Matthew. It's caught at the highest moment of drama. You can smell the sweat. You can feel the fear and the light. Like, what is this guy doing to the light? (laughs) So the Catholic Church had been looking for ways to combat the surge of Protestantism. We talked about other aspects of this in Henry VIII, all the Tudors podcast, and this emotional sort of art, that was exactly what they wanted. That was exactly what they needed. And Caravaggio was vaulted to superstardom. And that kind of personality does not need to be a superstar, by the way. But anyway. (laughs) Although if you're going to be a superstar and you have that personality, it's probably best, you know, because you can get away with a lot more than you could if you were just this average Joe, you know. I guess so. But man, he is a piece of work. Um, He died real early and nobody's surprised, by the way. So his technique and style influenced art, you know, going forward, really, including Orazio and ultimately Artemisia's work. Now, the early life of Artemisia is pretty well lost to history. So we do know that she didn't have any traditional education. She'd never learned to read and write in her youth, though she did pick that up later. Spelling was never her forte. I'll tell you that right now. Um, Her father's studio was really on the premises in the house in the same building they lived in. And he brought in some extra income by renting out the top floor of the house. And I can only assume that Papa's friends were in and out of the studio all the time. And there's, you know, little Artemisia, a little girl painting away. And though Caravaggio was probably the most nefarious... Um, he didn't have to skip town, you know, because he killed the guy one time. Um, <laughs> I love that Orazio and Caravaggio spent some time in a jail cell together for slandering another artist. But, you know, slander, really? That's what you're picking up this guy? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. But still, they, I think that's funny. They were in this jail cell together. <laughs> Isn't that a thing on Facebook? You know, what would I what would you say if we 
Oh, we woke up in prison together. What's your first words? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I think Papa's friends on the whole were a little bit not safe for work. You know, like chefs, I say, being happily married to one. They're a little (laughs) bit piratey. And when Mama died, when Artemisia was only 12, these were her companions. Um, Yeah, she died in childbirth. Super common. That's not even that surprising, which is really sad. So um, occasionally, uh, there might have been the occasional prostitute stopping by to serve as a model, although technically they weren't allowed to have nude female models on the premises. Uh But, you know, (laughs) allowed. That's cute. Um, So her art education continued, and the first known signed painting of hers was completed when she was 17. It is a painting of Susanna and the Elders from the Book of Daniel, which is in the Apocrypha. Um, I'm going to provide you a link with the story of the Apocrypha and why it is not any longer in the Bible in some Bibles mm-hmm. and why it is in others. I we don't need to go into it now. It's just a like a parallel no. series of stories, a biblical era story yes. that may or may not have appeared in some versions. <laughs> Susanna was a beautiful woman, and she's taking a bath. It's like those outside pool baths, kind of like a hot tub of ancient times and these two skeezy guys come up and proposition her of course she turns them down flat and they're all like okay fine we'll just tell people that we had sex with you anyway and you'll be put on trial and you'll be killed because that's what we do to women who have sex with men and you know it was clearly her fault so that's exactly what happened and at the trial Susanna was found guilty and sentenced to death but Right before the death was to happen, biblical Daniel, you know, of the lion's den, he shows up, takes her side, separates the men and says, okay, you say you had sex with her under a tree. What kind of tree was it? They differ on their answers. Susanna is sent free. You know, the part of that that gets me is that Daniel (laughs) shows up at the last minute and asks that the men be questioned, which raises the question in my mind. Susanna is about to be executed and no one has cross-examined the witnesses. Ironic to Artemisia's life. I mean, more on that later, but the elders were questioned. They were proven to be lying and they were executed instead. So that is poetic justice. Quite a few artists used this story and cynically, cynically, although comically, one book I read said it was because it gave both the artist and the purchaser of the finished painting the opportunity to have a religious painting that included a legitimate reason for a female nude. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, it was very popular. I mean, her father painted it, Caravaggio painted it, everybody painted it. Thomas Although... Hart Benton painted it in 1938. It's not just in antiquity either. Right. Some researchers have said that this is perhaps an uneasy self-portrait herself and her papa's leering friends. Um, you know, the uneasiness of being a 12. 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old young lady and the increasing attention you're going to get from guys who really don't have too many boundaries. So not long after this painting was completed, Artemisia began to have some serious trouble with one of her father's friends, a man named Augustino Tossi that Papa used to paint religious frescoes with back in the day. And he began coming around more often, um, mostly when Papa wasn't home. And he was nominally supposed to be teaching her perspective because that was what he was known for. He painted these fooling the eye landscapes like you would paint fake columns. And then in between, you'd paint a perspective landscape 
Mm-hmm. It's not really there. It's just a wall, but it's supposed to look yeah, like yeah. a window. That was his forte. Yeah. yeah. So um, so technically he had a reason to kind of come around, but waiting until Papa was gone all the time, super sketch. Well, he made friends with the woman tenant upstairs, and he may have even paid her to help him. Mm. And she was, I think she might have been motivated. I saw some uh, allusions to uh, her having relations with Orazio and being kind of jealous that he wouldn't ever marry her. So this Tossi would worm his way in to talk privately to Artemisia by saying, you know, he wanted to tell her what this other scurvy dog Francesca had said she was doing with him out there in the marketplace. Like, you know, don't you want to hear what's going on? And I got to think she was used to some of this attention, you know, given the nature of her father's other friends. You know, so what? Kind of. She said, I know I'm a virgin um, until I have a ring on this finger. It's fine. Mm -hmm. He can say what he wants. I can prove whatever. You guys... Tossi came over with a male friend who said she better be nice to Agostino. You better or else. And suddenly the woman upstairs convinced Papa that, oh, your daughter looks pale. She should go for walks. I'll take her. It's respectable. And, you know, who is around every freaking corner? Who? Agostino. The stalker Tossi. I know. God. And what are you going to even do? What are you going to even do when the woman upstairs just lets him in the house? Mm-hmm. And in 1611, she's 17, Agostino came to the house again, and Artemisia was painting a portrait of one of the upstairs woman's sons, ironically, just for her own pleasure. It's not a commission or anything. And Agostino grabbed the paintbrush and her palette out of her hand and yelled, not so much painting, and locked the door and attacked her. She pulled at his hair. She scratched at him. She even ripped off a piece of his penis i don't know if you want that word in there um but she threw a knife at him and it just kind of grazed him but it did to no avail because he did violently rape her now as if this is not bad enough papa is infuriated not so much at the personal feelings of his daughter which i'm sorry to say that no one at the time seems to regard in the least but sort of i guess property damage Mm-hmm. You've ruined my prospects of her respectable marriage and sons. My name is besmirched. And what seems to calm Papa down? Augustino promises that he'll go ahead and marry Artemisia. And so he is allowed further access, not to put too fine a point on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for quite a while. And, you know, it just keeps going on and on and on. And finally, there's... Papa's like, you're not going to marry her, are you? And he brings charges against Tassi and his accomplice just for those damages you were just talking about. Not, again, not for the violent crime that was committed. (sighs) Well, and Augustino Tassi may have already, in fact, been married. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll talk about the trial a little bit, but that didn't even come out to like halfway through the trial. This guy's been around for how long? (laughs) So, only when Agostino backs out of the deal is there even a trial. What follows is a very well-documented, almost eight-month-long case in which Artemisia has to rehash in public over and over again the events of that day while Agostino and his friends and that 'er ne'er-do-well Francesco that was bragging to his little friends about her and the upstairs neighbor lady tried to convince the judge that Artemisia was a known loose woman. So what did her words count for anything? Still a common defense in 2017, I understand, shamefully. Yes. Uh, Artemisia was subjected to torture to see if her version of events would hold up under duress. So the thumbscrew, not a screw like a drywall screw, but there are two versions 
the string one was the one that they used. But basically, um, it could be this metal thing that looks like a closed off H. And you put your thumbs on each side and the torturer turns the center post with a handle to make the sides close up and crush your fingers. And some were even ridged like the insides of nutcrackers so they would break your fingernails. And there's another version where basically, uh, I don't know if you've ever done this with like a rubber band or something, but you basically just twist the string and these wooden pieces of stick together. And the more you twist, the more you twist, the more you twist, the more it cuts into your finger. And you can get it tight enough with this handle and a strong enough man that you could literally break someone's fingers with a piece of string. And Artemisia called out to Agostino during this torture that this was the ring you'd given me. The theory was if she gives the same story over and over and over again, that it's true. Like she would lie to stop the pain, but she's not going to lie. She's going to tell the truth. She's when they're questioning her, she's under so much pain. She's going, it is true. It is true. It is true. She just keeps repeating it because they're not believing her. So she is totally on trial. Not only is she enduring the pain of these thumb screws, but they physically examined her. Yeah, there was like a thin sheet up and there's two midwives that said they could determine whether or not she had been a virgin. So she's essentially getting a gyno exam in front of this audience. And this trial, it was famous. People were coming just to watch the trial because they wanted to see what it was entertainment for them. So you add a little gyno appointment entertainment in there. Oh my gosh, the poor woman. So Papa brought his knowledge of his old friend's life to bear. He has committed incest. People, he's been convicted of it. He has children with his sister-in-law. And Artemisia's story was finally believed, though only, I think, after one of the cronies of Agostino went back on his prior testimony. So openly in court, the judge in question, that had the authority, was telling the man in the case that doesn't match what you said before. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So through the testimony of assorted men, Artemisia uh, was cleared of charges because it seems like they put her on trial and not mm-hmm. Right. So um, Augustino was sentenced to some jail time. I think he served eight months. Supposed to be banished from Rome, but he circled back soon after he left and no one ever enforced it. So, huh. No, well, he was a pet of the Pope at the time. So if you're in with the Pope, the Pope's going to, you know, make everybody turn their heads. I have to say, as part of his unexpected punishment forever, Even now, he's not remembered as a painter first. He's remembered as the rapist of a painter. I mean, if you look him up, the first thing it says is raped Artemisia Gentileschi. It's the first thing. Painter is down the list. So, I mean, his reputation at the time wasn't trashed. But over time, it was. I don't know. Playing the long game doesn't seem... No, I don't think he's satisfying. I know. So if you look back at Susanna and the elders now, knowing that, you're like, man, is that prophetic or what? Or some historians have said, is it backdated? Was it painted after the whole case and her father um, decided that that was just a little too on the nose and having it backdated before this trial was probably the better plan? So, woo, what a dramatic place to end the first segment. That is a trauma, you know, that is a trauma that may or may not color the rest of her work and the rest of her life. And we will explore that more when we come back.
so now we are back. Now what? After all this scandal and all this trauma, which no one seems to be regarding at all, and we have no record of Artemisia's true emotional feelings about it, but what to do? What to do? A convent would be one option, but there goes the art career, and what a shame to waste all that training. So the only other option was... To marry her off. I mean, the relationship between Artemisia and Razio was kind of another victim of the whole trial because he put her there. He made the situation where she had to go through all that trauma on trial. So marrying her off got her out of Rome, got her away from him and, you know, kind of gave her a fresh canvas, so to speak. So less than a month after the trial was over, Artemisia was married to a friend of her father's, another painter, Pierantonio Stiatesi. Hope I got that right. There is no pronunciation guide. They keep um, diverting me to the word stiletto. <laughs> so um, her reputation was magically glued back together as far as society's concerned. So we've all seen Pride and Prejudice, right? It's the same phenomenon. Lydia runs away at 15. We're doomed. Lydia marries at 15. Hooray! <laughs> yeah, although I think Lydia kind of had an, at least an infatuation. I'm fairly certain Artemisia and uh, Pier Antonio did not. <laughs> I keep thinking that Pier Antonio owed Papa money. I actually am kind yeah. of thinking it was a matter of getting out of a debt that he did. I'm like, that is not a good basis for a healthy relationship. No, so. no, no. Or maybe she did come with a small dowry and he was a very poor painter. Maybe he wanted a wife, although, you know, she was a painter. So it wasn't like he was going to have her waiting on him. Well, the main effect is that she was able to get out of Dodge and Papa had a working relationship with the Grand Duchess Christina of Tuscany. Uh, mother of the current duke, mother of the head honcho, let's just say. That's a nice connection. And he wrote to her about what was happening during the trial. Actually, he had written her like, oh, my family's troubles, blah, blah, blah. And he hinted that his daughter sure could use some patronage or at least some introductions. So Mr. Artemisia, as we're now going to call him, was from Florence. And Papa had now paved the way as best he could for success. And so the couple moved there. Florence is in Tuscany, so... Mm -hmm. uh, to make a new life. I, I just want to add one thing. Something else just occurred to me. Maybe part of the appeal of this marriage for the husband was the connections for his career. Maybe this was a way to get them. I, I don't know. You know what? My husband and I have talked about the fact that we can't move to a different city because my husband has this huge network here of I know a guy. <laughs> and he feels that it is too high of a price to pay to start over. Because yeah. I know a guy has taken, you know, this many years to build up and it is a powerful currency. <laughs> <laughs> so I 100% agree with what you have just said. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So for the sake of clarity, we're just going to put the children here. And it counts very even as to the number of them. But she either had four or five children, but most of them died either at birth or a year afterward. Um, so not that they're not important to the mother, but they're not important to our story. There's only one who survived to adulthood, a girl named Prudentia after Artemisia's mother, but typically called Palmyra. So that's why you see them both. If you're reading any books, they're both those names are in the, in the different versions. I do think this is important to our story because she's starting her career in, in Florence 
and she's pregnant like the whole time. I think that adds a little something to the story. So well, another hardship, I suppose. I mean, you try painting when you're pregnant. I painted kids' bedroom walls, so. <laughs> Actually, I got out of cleaning toilets for the whole eight months because my husband read somewhere that the smell of cleaning products was harmful to the baby. So he took over bathroom cleaning duties as soon as I got the plus sign on the stick. I just got out of the cat litter. Oh, we didn't have a cat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So I just wanted to add here that so much of what we read in regard to Artemisia, I mean, you know, we joke about number of children, et cetera, but like so much of it really depends on the recentness of your source, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, the more recent your source is, the more details you're going to find. And there is plenty of active research going on like right now. Some letters just turned up that changed everything. And there's the feeling that, you know, a new day dawns, a painting gets reattributed to her and the whole history changes. A letter mm-hmm. gets found with a mention of so-and-so and a new window has opened up. It's pretty exciting, really. It's like Indiana Jones or looking at Indiana Jones. I'm not Indiana Jones. <laughs> so all we know about the daughter as of right now is that she seems to have taken after her mother in painting um, in a minor way and... She was married to someone as there is some complaints about bankruptcy following having to provide a dowry for her daughter. So she mm-hmm. was married and painted things. And that's literally as far as we go with the daughter. And I'm sorry to say I don't know anything else. Nope. So shortly after the move to Florence, Artemisia painted what might be her most famous work. If you've heard of Artemisia Gentileschi, you've probably seen it. Judith beheading Holofernes. This is a story that's put in a lot of paintings by a lot of artists, but this is the first one that Artemisia does after the trial. So it's kind of significant to her story. And she will actually paint this subject, I think, four times um, in her life. But this first one, okay, here's the story. Do you want me to do the story? Sure. Okay. In the story, Judith and her maid entered the tent of General Halifernes. He was getting his troops ready to destroy Judith's home city. Now, Judith crossed the enemy lines because she knew that Halifernes was hot for her. This is a beautiful woman, and he's a testosterone-driven man. When she gets in his tent, she fills him up with wine, and when he passes out, she cuts off his head and the two, her and her maid, bring it back to her people. When his army sees that their leader is headless, they retreat. Now, a lot of these paintings depict very uh, timid Judith or very pretty Judith standing in the background or the head already off. But Artemisia's, <laughs> the moment that she decided to capture is the moment that the maid is holding down Halifernes and Judith is diving into his neck with a sword. There's blood splattering everywhere, which is probably a lot more realistic to what it would have really been. So it's a subject others have covered, notably our old friend Caravaggio, but this picture, wow, what you see is the moment Holofernes is waking up and the realization of what is happening to him, the too lateness. The absolute determination on Judah's face, the involvement in her maid of holding him down to get the deed done. It's even more shocking than Caravaggio's version, if you can believe that. His Judith looks conflicted. His maid looks bored. It's nothing. (laughs) She's got nothing. This maid, though, she's like, girl, we will do this. Yeah, let's get it done. The other thing that after you get past the gore of the picture, 
uh, Artemisia was so good at painting women realistically because she was a woman. It was, you know, she knew how when a woman leans to her side, her breast goes with her. You know, it doesn't stay in the position it was in before. She knows where the folds of a woman's neck would be, for instance. And that's what, in this painting, is very different from those others because those elements are there too. No, I will counterpoint that by saying Caravaggio's Holofernes is a muscly hunk of man and Artemisia's has made hers kind of softer, more realistic maybe, but he is no Hulk. (laughs) So she has less idealized the man just as she has really realistically painted the woman. Oh, good. Many art historians see this painting as Artemisia's cathartic processing of her attack. And maybe it was, I mean... How good to be able to express your feelings this way? If so, um, you know, some biographers even say that Judith is a Mm self-portrait. And if you look at later self-portraits, you know, I can see it. The author, Mary Garrett, says that this painting is, and I quote, an expression of the artist's private and perhaps repressed rage. Now, I just want to shy away from making a definite statement about her motivation. Mm-hmm. Here, this is a well-traveled yeah. subject among artists. It's painted in Artemisia's early Caravaggio-like emotional style. That style by itself is an emotional thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I just have to tell you, I would be super delighted to receive confirmation that Holofernes looks like Tossie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or yeah, we don't know a what letter he explaining like. her reasoning that way. I mean, she. She did sign this painting. She didn't always sign her paintings, but this one is signed absolutely and defiantly on the sword. <laughs> Artemisia Lomi, I have made this. Yeah. Yeah, she used Lomi while she was in Florence because that was the name that, you know, was known there. She couldn't write, so she couldn't write it out. She hadn't had any women in her life. You know, her mom had left her. She died, but whatever. And Tutsia kind of betrayed her. She didn't have any of those female relationships like you and I would like talk through something like this as as a catharsis moment. So yeah, there's good evidence that she painted it for that reason. But there's also good evidence that she painted it because it would sell. And I just really, really hesitate to ascribe that kind of motivation to someone without talking to her. <laughs> it's just like diagnosing illnesses. Well, you know, we can say whatever we want, but until we talk to her, we won't know. So therefore, unless we find that letter, I don't think we're going to know. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not knowing. I am too. I think, you know, a little mystery is good. And and it keeps people talking about her work, which, you know, that doesn't hurt either. So it is or it isn't. That's my final word. (laughs) (laughs) That was my final word too. Okay. Well, but even a hundred years later, might I add, even uh, this painting was deemed so upsetting to see that it had to be hung in an obscure place in a museum to avoid it inadvertently upsetting people. Like you had to mean to go see it because you didn't want, you know, people coming across it unexpectedly and fainting or whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> like you had to ask the guy where it was and then literally purposely like going to see a horror movie. You had to purposely want to go in there and get scared. Yeah. I think the only thing I could liken it to was um, in the 80s, there was a touring uh, Robert Mapplethorpe exhibit of his photographs. And um, it was the same thing. It was in a, you had to, you knew you were going in to see something that was going to disturb you. Well, in both of those cases, and I must say Frida Kahlo, which we talked about this, if Mm -hmm. art is supposed to make you feel something, I would say check on this one. It will make somebody feel something. And it did even then. Mm-hmm. It's not the same thing we feel now, maybe, but it, 
I think it evoked emotion and, you know, success. Yeah. So she went back to this theme um, more times over the years. And my favorite is called Judith and her maidservant. And it was painted a couple years later in which the two ladies with Holofernes head in a bag. <laughs> He's <laughs> yeah. in the picture. Just his head. They've heard a noise. They've heard a noise off screen and they're frozen and they're looking off canvas at something. And I can't imagine a sleep beheading has been super quiet. <laughs> <laughs> um, the lighting is epic. There's just like one candle worth of lighting. I don't know how. I don't know how she does it. The fabric is reflecting the candlelight. The faces. I mean, it's just so good. And the horrible <laughs> tension is almost too much to bear. If you don't know, they they make it because that's a spoiler. They make it because it <laughs> looks like the jig is up. It looks like oh no, somebody's right. coming. That's what it's, it looks like. It's the climax of the story. That's the moment that she chose to capture. So in Florence, Artemisia was making friends. Galileo, for one, that's not too shabby. A man who was a descendant of Michelangelo believed in her work and talked her up everywhere. And it is nice when someone with influence that big takes the time to do that, I think. And they called him Michelangelo the Younger, and he was actually taking an unused family house and converting it into kind of a museum or a shrine to his great uncle. And he commissioned her to paint a painting for a panel in the ceiling. And then it, I love this painting, even though she gave it to him without any clothes on. And over the years, she has a drape across her. They retouched it later, I guess. But I loved, I love the colors in it. I love the feel of it. I, I thought that um, it's just beautiful. It's an allegory of inclination or an allegory of natural talent. And I did not know what an allegory was. Oh. <laughs> so well, I had to look it up. It's a story, poem, or picture that can be interpreted to have a hidden meaning. So there's symbolism within the painting that means something other than what you're looking at. Very nice. It's a little yeah. art history course up here at the history. Yeah. She became the first woman to become a member of the Academia della Arte del Disegno, which is just the Academy of the Arts of Drawing, the elite club for prominent artists in the Medici Court, the VIP room, I guess. Yeah, right. The VIP <laughs> That's right. room. That's right. So Artemisia also met a wealthy man named Francesco Marenghi, who became her lover. And incidentally, financial supporter to a degree. And um, possible father of a child that possibly was born later in her life. Yes. Francesca, I hear, is this child's purported name. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this is a very recent development. Recent, I mean, I'm talking 2012, I want to say. Recent development, this discovery of these letters, um, which really changed the picture a lot. And it's not curious right now that Artemisia and her husband began to have marital difficulties. And much has been made of Mr. Artemisia's, you know, knife attack on an admirer of his wife. And I have to say that my older books place the blame for their marriage breaking up on him. He gambled, he spent all her money, he cheated, all of which could still be true. But love letters have surfaced recently between Artemisia and Francesco Marenghi. That's exciting stuff. And that puts some blame on her, too. And a different mm -hmm. story, really. Mm -hmm. So Artemisia requested permission from the Grand Duke, yeah. her patron, to travel mm -hmm. to Rome. Um, and the substance of her letter was, okay, look, 
I know I'm not through with your Hercules. I know that I've been advanced money to buy Ultramarine Blue, which was the super expensive. And it was actually made partially of crushed gemstones. Uh-huh. Uh, it was the most expensive paint, I think, on earth. And she had been advanced money to buy it for this painting. But she went on, you know, I assure you, I shall complete the work on your commission. I've had some family difficulties and I wish to visit friends for a few months. Health reasons. There were some reports that she had been sick. Was it that they had spent all their money and they were having financial problems? Or, you know, did she just want to leave her husband? <laughs> well, husband, peace out here. Pretty much. Husband. He's out. And Cosimo Medici's people seized some of Artemisia's goods for a while until old Francesco Marenghi promised that he was good for the money. You know, so much for trust. Well, anyway, I don't think anyone's ever found that Hercules, so we're even. <laughs> Every time I hear that, I, I just see Tyler Perry. Hercules! Hercules. <laughs> there is a Hercules <laughs> later, but I don't think it's the one that she mentioned here. I think it is in the realm of lost paintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many paintings, by the way, that have been described, but no one knows where they are. That's so I okay. Know. Do you remember during the Carrie Nation podcast when we talked about that bar painting of Cleopatra, the mm-hmm. one she like tore a hole in with her hatchet? Mm-hmm. And nobody knows where it is, but it's probably hanging in the basement of a frat house in Delaware or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is so exciting that these paintings could be any place. Paintings that have been described and not found in somebody's grandma's kitchen where it's been for 100 years. I love this. Or more practically and kind of more boringly, I guess, but not if you're an art historian, it could be simply misattributed to a different artist. Right, because she signed less than half of her work that's known. So one expert I was listening to, I was listening to a lecture by him, and he said that any time a museum curator gets a reputed Artemisia Gentileschi, it is a minefield, he says, because so Mm -hmm. much of her work has been over the years, um, you know, attributed to different artists. I think I listened to that same lecture. I thought it was very interesting. And I'll put it on the show notes. So Artemisia moved to Rome. I guess she felt sort of free to just do it because Cosimo died on her way out. Like, well, sucks to be you. Sorry. (laughs) During that time, her father made nice with Tossie. They started working together again, which that was just another blow. Infuriating. Yeah, so their relationship is uh, complicated at best. I mean, they were exchanging some letters, but they weren't warm and gushy at all. Um, She was creating paintings for, I have to say, very influential customers. Kings, not too shabby. Ambassadors, viceroys, um, the rich and influential. Her support from Spain was particularly strong. And there seemed to be, in the Spanish court, a... Well, now keep in mind... The court at Naples was basically a Spanish court. (laughs) It was like a vice regal situation. There seemed to be a fascination with the oddity of having a painting by a woman, like a rarity factor. And there were a few other women operating either before or simultaneously. Um, Sofonispa Anguissola was probably the most famous. Mm -hmm. Artemisia mostly, not always, but mostly painted female figures. Susanna and Judith, we've talked about. Cleopatra, Esther, the Virgin Mary, which is a given role. Yeah, Yeah, she had several versions of the Virgin Mary, and she also did uh, Mary Magdalene several times in different poses. And Minerva and Delilah. Mm -hmm. But always, you know, kind of heroic women, and if it was a scene, um, the woman had power. So again, that just fuels that, you know, why is she painting these? Or is it just a thing? Is it her thing? 
Well, and then again, that was a fashionable movement at the time. She was painting Mm -hmm. them in literature and in painting. I mean, you said during the Placed in History, this is when Shakespeare is writing Taming of the Shrew. Now, of course, Taming of the Shrew has a, in my personal mind, objectionable ending where she's all meek and mild at the end, but at least she was strong through most of it. Um, So is it feminist, this choice of subject Or is it being a smart lady who knows what your customers want sales-wise? Which is also a female empowerment point in and of itself that she was a good business person, you know, so I guess that could be considered feminist, right? I agree. Okay, so her name was really well known, not just through Italy, but in parts of Europe too. But she still consistently had to sell herself. And it's not unlike freelancers nowadays, where you have to send a a sample of your work or an actual finished piece as a query and wait to see if they buy it. Um, She would send this sample or sketch or an actual finished painting to someone that she wanted to work for. And they would either send her money back and keep the painting, or they'd contact her and have her paint something for them, something specific. But she really thought, I mean, even 25 years after this period, she really thought that she had to work harder to get all of those commissions than any man did. She said, quote, a woman's name raises doubts until her work is seen. She just doubted that people were looking at her first as a painter. They were looking at her first as a woman. And it never stops, even though she gets even more famous. It never stops. This is probably a good time to take a little break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the rest of her life and her work. And we are back. So Artemisia is in Rome. And again, she joins the famous artists and not so famous artists and poets of the day. She seems to be quite welcomed, honored even. And there is, it is pretty charming, a painting of Artemisia by her friend Simon Vouet, a French artist that has a secret little homage in it. So the figure in the painting is wearing a medallion on which there is a stamped mausoleum. Like, so what, you say? So what? Who cares? Well, painters might know what this is. It refers to another Artemisia, a queen of ancient times, who had built for her husband a tomb of such magnificence that it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Uh what does this mean for the viewer? Or for our Artemisia, when you see this, it's a great compliment. Like, you also create great works, my friend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so good. And another tribute from the awesomely named Pierre Dumontier II. (laughs) It's called Right Hand of Artemisia Gentileschi Holding a Brush. And on the back is written in French, which I will not attempt. In English, I say, the hands of Aurora are praised and renowned for all their rare beauty, but this one is a thousand times more worthy for knowing how to make marvels that send the most judicious eyes into raptures. Well, now... Thanks for My that. goodness. I could have sworn that I saw her on like a medallion. Somebody did her likeness on a medallion. Although when I went back to 
look at for it. I couldn't find it. Did you see that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The hits just kept coming. Those were just the only two that I mentioned. I hate to say this, but she was the token woman and she was just so exceptional from what their preconceived notions of womanhood were going to be. I think she just like dazzled the freak out of everybody. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they were so delighted to be around her. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and, she was a subject not only of physical art, but of poetry. Yes. And something we do not know exactly what, not yet we don't. We might later. Something led her to move to Venice, sort of a forgotten section of her life. It's about four years worth, um, a pilgrimage to absorb the light. Uh, I don't know. To haunt the streets where Tintoretto walked. I don't know why, but she did join another group of artists, poets, musicians here, and was part of... I guess I would call it a salon, although I think they called it an academy. And what I mean by that is not like a place, like a studio place, but more like a a place where everyone sits around on couches and talks about stuff and, Mm -hmm. you know, dashes off drawings about stuff, oral poetry and stand up comedy and like all, you know, it's just like a whole bunch of different kinds of creative people all hanging out together as they were sitting around on the sofas, um, which I picture as for some reason, I picture as like green and yellow velvet, which I have no idea what they are. You wouldn't (laughs) want to have velvet in such a humid place, would you? Be super gross. They would talk about a theme, like what is the place of women in society? which is a theme they covered a lot. Uh, Well, you know, what is it? I think everyone's still hammering that out, right? Even today. (laughs) Some historians are calling this a sort of proto-feminism, that these sort of discussions eventually caused radical ideas to percolate throughout society, to start to percolate. I mean, the same kind of thing's happening in France, too. Radical ideas that, like, hey, chicks are people, are starting Uh to go through (laughs) society. I know. Right. Oh, how far we've come. Or not. (laughs) Or not. Um, So the only painting that is nearly certain to be from this Venice time is a painting of Esther. The story here, another biblical heroine. Okay, an aside here. If they had had more stories available to them, would we have this vast catalog of differing artists doing the same art like Caravaggio's painting of Bridget Jones and Mark Darcy on the stairs? <laughs> or like Artemisia's Buffy, the slayer of vampires. <laughs> oh my god, I would love to see that painting. <laughs> and actually, the TV show Supernatural, I mean, they have a lot of, you know, there's kind of biblical references. There's a lot of angels and de- demons and stuff that are in the Bible that have are characters in that show. So Artemisia's view of supernatural would be something legitimately oh, do. And I'm telling you, there is a strong fandom for Supernatural. And the least beloved Gilmore boyfriend is a superstar on that one, right? Oh, yes, he is. Well, so back to the story of Esther. Here's the extremely short version. Esther's husband, and I'm going to use his short name because his long name is unpronounceable, King Xerxes. He has to be told of a plot against the Jewish people in his land. Well, Esther, his wife, who has not revealed that she herself is Jewish, um, resolves to go make a case and let him know the information. But the thing is, you can't go into the presence of the king upon pain of death. It's a hard decision to try to make. Even if you're married to him, you can't go in there. But she goes in there anyway, and all hell's about to break loose. Now, traditionally, the king, in this case, is super fearsome. He's scary. And Esther is fainting in fear that she's going to be killed. She ends up okay. He doesn't commit her to death. Good husband, no. etc. But And she's, a, she's a definitely a heroine of the Bible. Yes. But in Artemisia's version, the husband is, number one, he's super young. He has an expression on his face like, oh no, what's the matter? 
with her. What's happening? He is dressed super ridiculously. Like he has boots with the fur. And he's got, you know, he's just a goofball. And he is not idealized macho at all. So here she is chipping away at the classic motif of Xerxes, the main man of the story. Well, you know what? If men could be painting the women like that all those years, why can't she paint the men? There you go. So probably at the request of the Spanish Viceroy of Naples, Artemisia was invited to the court there. She was not the only woman um, circling around the court at Naples. It was sort of a status symbol to have a woman painter. It was kind of even like a little hipster thing. Like, I have one and you don't. Artemisia had her first major commission by a church. She was to do an altarpiece, which is really the big kahuna, the pinnacle of an artist's career in those days. So that's where the public's going to see your work. That is where your name is going to be known. Because, you know, you can paint things for wealthy clients, but their friends might see or their subjects might see if they're high enough rank. But the average everyday people aren't ever going to see your work unless you paint in a church. And it's a major piece. And it's called the Annunciation. We'll also post a picture of that. Well, she never really loved Naples. Never. She always complained it was too expensive and too violent. There were always protests against Spanish rule there. Um, Always rumbling around. But, you know, this is where the truly reliable clients are. Those ones with the deep pockets. The Mm -hmm. ones with connections. And, according to one witness, she lived sumptuously. Good for her. I know. Again, the fame among her colleagues and the adoration. So I'm very... Very glad she began work on pieces for a cathedral, even. So she's really moving on up. She was important enough to sort of chastise a client for trying to lowball her on price. (laughs) Now, like, now she's like, really? With this, because you know, when you're just starting out, you like kind of have to humbly accept. Yeah, you know, I'll work for exposure. Myself. All right, whatever. And now she's not going to take his crap, although she did uh-uh. put it more diplomatically than that. Well, you know what? She was ripped off. I mean, there's people that took advantage of her. I don't know if it was because she's a woman or because they were just jerks. One time she sent a sketch to someone and he rejected it, but he had somebody else paint it exactly the moment that she would have painted. Because they did it cheaper and they were a man. And, and she thought that about she's it. not going to find out because sure enough, I mean, people yeah. can't wait to put bad news like that in a letter to you. Sure enough, uh-huh. she knew practically the second it happened too. Yep. Don't underestimate the power of people's, you know, network. Oh, yeah. You know, she was just a brilliant marketer. Um, she would write these letters and there's some that still exist. She had a patron named uh, Don Antonio Rufio, who was an Italian noble and a huge art collector. He was um, a patron of hers for many years and he kept the letters. There were some letters about how she was dickering for price. This is how this starts. And I am going to assume that this is how all of her marketing pieces started. All of her letters, quote, most illustrious sir and my master, by God's will, your most illustrious lordship has received the painting, and I think that by now you must have seen it. I fear that before you saw the painting, you must have thought I was arrogant and presumptuous, but I hope to God, after seeing it, you will agree that I was not totally wrong. <laughs> the wording is just so flowery. This is awesome. <laughs> well, also, it shows that she has supreme self-confidence. So she has uh-huh. reached the point in her career that she knows she's doing good work. So, Oh, yeah. She, in, in that very letter, later on, it says, I will send you also my portrait so that you can keep it in your gallery as all the other princes do. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, you're not my only prince. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You're not my only <laughs> prince. 
<laughs> so can I please insert a disclaimer here? You know, even though Artemisia spent almost 22 years here in Naples, the details of her life here just kind of peter out. Though I assure you that the most well-versed of people are working on it. And I think there is scope here for a doctoral thesis, if any of you are inclined. Oh, yeah. Paintings are being reattributed to her all the time. And documents are being found by and about her that will fill in this story. And it's thought she might have run a workshop or she trained young assistants here. Um, in which case, if that's true, she might have been the first female in charge of such a place. Mm-hmm. So... Let's wait for confirmation on that and draw a veil kind of over Naples for a minute, since there is kind of a veil of history over it anyway. Remember Papa? He had received a commission in London, and it was to paint some very Venetian-style art for the Queen's house in Greenwich. You know, come on, give the old boy a hand. (laughs) Yeah, they might have made up. There's actually a couple different versions about why she went Um, to England. Okay, her father's health was failing. So was she just being a good daughter and coming to help him out? Um, Or there's another one that has her being used by a uh, Roman cardinal that was in England. And he wanted another Italian around. Um, It's kind of like, you know, more of his people in the area. So she was kind of used for political reasons to go there. Um, And she would have had to if, if it was that because you know, the church is such a profit center for for artists. So you, if the church asks you to do something, you kind of have to do it. So we don't know why she went, but she did go. So when Artemisia was 45, she traveled to London to work with her father on a piece called The Allegory of Peace and the Arts. It's a big ceiling. It's one of those ones that has a lot of different little medallions with action happening in each circle or square. It actually has been removed from the ceiling and it is now in Marlborough House. So it's still in existence. Um, I have to say one thing. While, while she was in London with her father, he was working on a piece called Joseph and Potiphar's Wife. Mm-hmm. Which I don't think is an insult to her, but it's super dire. And I hope she didn't walk in upon it while he was painting it. Because it's basically a woman falsely accusing Joseph of raping her to get him into trouble. Sensitivo, dad, sensitivo. I mean, not his fault, I guess. He didn't commission it or whatever, but like super awkward to walk into. Or was she just used to seeing stuff like that? Well, I don't know. I I don't know. I was kind of stopped short, like, really, with this? Yeah. yeah. Uh, She did a painting of uh, Hercules and Omphale. Omphale? Anyway. Um, And in that story... She, the woman actually kind of uh, rapes the man. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're seen as lovers, but he was actually, Hercules was actually um, his slave, her slave. So it's kind of like the Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings, quote, lover situations. Like he didn't really have a choice. He was her slave. So he just kind of made the most of it. <laughs> Right. But she's, but again, you know, the woman is in the power position. So maybe, you know, she's like, ah, I painted that. So you paint, you paint whatever. <laughs> I guess it's just a common theme. And maybe I'm seeing this with too much modern sensitivity. Like maybe she genuinely doesn't care. Just like you said, like, well, mm-hmm. it's a story. It's a famous story. The end. 
I yeah. just was like, I came all the way to London and then, ha, huh, hello, I'm greeted by this. Sorry, whatever. <laughs> it's believed that it was here that she did. I think this is her most famous painting. It's an allegory for painting. It's a self-portrait. Um, it is just so beautiful. This is my favorite. Do you have a, do you agree or no? Oh, no, I have no feelings for this painting whatsoever. <laughs> oh, you don't? I just nope. think it's so, I just think it's, it's her obviously it's a self-portrait of herself painting and she's looking at her subject with a paintbrush ready to go on the canvas but her subject was herself so I don't know I just in her dress this it was a silk of some sort and the colors it's just as it the fabric moved it changed colors and it was very expensive fabric so I think that kind of showed um the opulence that she had in her life and uh, she's very confident in the painting and it's just kind of like yeah I'm painting you know okay here is the one thing I think is interesting about this and it's kind of meta the allegory of painting has been painted before but painting as a concept is a woman Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so all previous artists that have painted this have been a man. So by definition, they cannot paint a self-portrait as the allegory of painting. They cannot right. because they're dudes. So right. this is the very first artist who could legitimately pull off self-portrait as allegory of painting, which seems sort of uh, multiple meaning to me. Yeah. I like the, the symmetry of it, that she's mm-hmm. the only one that could pull that off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I totally agree. So in a mathematical aspect, I love it a lot, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's all kinds of little, I'm not going to go into symbolism um, throughout the painting, her her pendant and um, her hair. I mean, there's all kinds of little symbols throughout the painting, although there's really not much in it. You know, it's very simple. It's her, her easel, um, and that's about it. (laughs) She's holding a paintbrush. So she built a lot of stuff into this one simple image, I guess. Incidentally, I guess I want to talk about the concept of self-portraits here. I read a stat someplace that puts two-thirds or nearly two-thirds of her female figures as some sort of Artemisia self-portraits. And if you were to flip through, you know, I want to say especially the ones that are just single figures, like the lute player, allegory mm-hmm. of painting. It's kind of creepy, at least to me, if you page through just those, because you get this feeling of like Artemisia just looking at you in all these costumes. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like if you look at them one after the other, it's like, hello, hello, it's me. Hello, hello again. Hi. <laughs> it's like looking through her her timeline on uh, or her uh, Instagram selfies. <laughs> And you know, if you think about this, though, it makes total sense because what other model was as handy or what other model would work whenever you felt like working yourself, of course, yourself. And you didn't have to pay. And you didn't have to pay. (laughs) Also, to do her profile, if you if you see her at the side, if you think about the mechanics of that, she has to have two mirrors going. Mm -hmm. Because if there's just one mirror, your eye muscles would hurt so bad if you were looking that far to the side so she's got to have this like (laughs) engineered bouncing of images from mirror to mirror so I think that's pretty cool um and if your face your own personal face is in your paintings doesn't that add a little fame because a guy meets the person they recognize from that painting oh it's you I've seen you before of course I have because my face came before I came Wasn't that a superior marketing strategy in addition to a little cost cutting and, you know, self-promotion. So there it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
she was brilliant. I, I'm going to just call it. She's a brilliant business person. So Papa died at some point during this commission. And Artemisia stayed to complete the ceiling. And, you know, she had some other things going. Never one to sleep, Artemisia. I think she had five or six or seven little commissions going at the same time to assorted British people in the area. So she stayed to finish all that up. But a civil war broke out in 1642. And Artemisia <laughs> hurried out of there back to Naples. Spoiler alert, Charles I didn't make it. <laughs> so she continued painting through the rest of her life and she was really never out of demand so to say though always still having to prove herself to new patrons due to being mm -hmm. a woman that was the bitterest thing and if there's a theme running through the work i don't even know if it's the attack that runs through now that i think about it it's the whole disgust like you know no matter what we do th this isn't even enough for you cutting off hall of Fairness head we're, we're still not <laughs> the equal of you Really? It's kind of like that theme seems to go through her whole work to me. Just the sheer disregard, I guess, mm -hmm. for the power of women when she proves it over and over and over and over and over again. Hmm. And so again, we have to say the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> yeah. So mm -hmm. the year of Artemisia's death is not completely certain. Now, I have to say every older book I have, every older book, puts mm -hmm. it in either 1652 or 1653. But now there's been some information that she was accepting commissions as late as 1654. Mm -hmm. And so current thinking is that in 1656, there was a plague, a kind of a massive plague that carried off a large proportion of the people of Naples. Um, and that may have been what finished off Artemisia too. And I read another theory that they thought perhaps it was suicide. I, I don't know. I think it's kind of sad. And you know what's even sadder is that within a few years of her death, she was virtually unknown. Her name didn't stick around like Caravaggio's did. I actually have a counterpoint to that. <laughs> okay, no, I have. Okay, so I have a confirmation and then I have a little, a little side note here. Okay, so in Rome, you're right. Poof. Mostly forgotten. You know, right. in Rome. But... You could argue that Rome is like Hollywood, you know, just like we talked about at the beginning. Rome is like Hollywood. There is always a new one to replace you. Mm -hmm. And fashion moves quickly. And most of the works from Rome, I was reminded of this by an author called Jesse Locker. You know, most of the things she painted in Rome went out of the country or at least out of the city to clients right. far away who kept them in their houses. So there's no public emotional attachment to anything from Rome. Or the Roman period at all. Like, yeah. if there were an altarpiece or a fresco or two hanging around, mm -hmm. you know, there might be a little, you know, emotion hanging around too. But right. she was pretty revered in Naples for quite a while after her death. She'd lived there so long. She had a network of friends and acquaintances and patrons. Even a hundred or so years after her death, she was still included in, you know, notable citizens, famous artists of so-and-so. And her name was still out there. And I think maybe her acquaintances were still in living memory. I see. And okay. it wasn't until, say, the grandchildren of the very youngest of the people that had known her in life were adults that she started to be forgotten there. Yeah, because she didn't sign. It's like those pictures that you get in the basement of your grandmother's house, and they're people you don't know because nobody wrote on the back. <laughs> who it was. So you're like, I have no idea who's in this picture. Yeah. So she was laid to rest, theoretically, so they say, in the church of St. Giovanni of the Florentines in Naples, maybe. <laughs> um, hmm. 
A writer in around 1812 recalls seeing there a broken marble slab that simply read Ache Artemisia. That's Latin H-E-I-C, which means herein. So herein Artemisia. And it was already broken when he saw it. But then the whole thing was gone after a later restoration uh, in, around the 1850s. And that's all That's all the data. So nowhere does she appear on the roster under any of her last names. Mm-hmm. Um, so was she there? All we have is that one guy's word. I look greatly forward to more turning up. I don't know. It just requires a piece of paper. <laughs> I mean, here's the cool thing. If... If her epitaph on the thing was herein Artemisia, that's kind of an honor too, because they assume, well, everyone's going to know who this is. Right. You don't have to go into too much detail, like, oh no, you are you are hereby seeing Artemisia. The end. Oh, it just shows you how famous she was at the time. Yeah. She kind of came back into the public consciousness in the early 1900s when an art critic did a critique of her work. And everyone's like, oh, look at this. And then as the women's movement kind of moved along and women's issues were becoming even more talked about, not just in those academies, but everywhere. Um, And the modern perspective came in. So this might be when we said that all of her work was a feminist, um, intentionally a feminist move. Right. And it could have been. I really think that she would be a good feminist role model even if she wasn't intentionally doing it. And I just kind of wonder, though, like so many of the ladies we talk about, you know, everybody's like, is she feminist? Is she feminist? There are some ladies that simply just do what they want to do. So they Mm -hmm. exemplify being a feminist just for themselves. But I don't know that they were part of making life better for other women. Right. I'm saying they just saw what they wanted and took it, you know, which is admirable. I just wonder if part of the definition of feminist is the belief that women and men are equal. She -hmm. believed she herself, who happens to be a woman, is equal and, in fact, superior to many men. But I'm not 100% sure she had the view that all women were equal. Right. So there's like the, you know, where do you divide? Where where do you draw the line? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and I'm going to just say art is very personal. So... (laughs) If you're looking at her work and you're seeing, you know, a feminist theme and it's giving you that power and it's making you feel like that, then that's what it is. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Well, so that'll bring us to the end of the life and some legacy of Artemisia Gentileschi. And when we come back, we will go into some media recommendations for further study. books first? Sure. I have to tell you, I had a lot of books to choose from in my library system, and I have a giant stack of them, and I have picked here the most useful ones to me. Um, Now, the big one, literally, I mean, literally, it's giant. It's heavy. You could press flowers with this. Metaphorically (laughs) also big. This is um, the kind of beginning of the modern study of Artemisia. Mary Garrard's 1989 biography of Artemisia, the first one, I think it's famous more 
for the author's attribution of Artemisia's subject matter throughout her life to her attack. And I'm being Mm -hmm. very simplistic here. I'm being very, I mean, of course, she goes into great detail with evidence and et cetera. But anyone who wants to learn more should definitely not miss this one. In fact, you should probably read it first. And it doesn't, that one has the uh, whole transcript of the trial, yes? It does. So (laughs) not only that, there are a whole bunch of her letters that she wrote over her lifetime that are published in a second index in the back. So that one definitely don't miss. And then from 1999, 10 years later, Ward Bissell's Artemisia Gentileschi and the Authority of Art, which seems to temper the feminist assertions of the previous book that I just talked about. So it's mansplaining Artemisia Gentileschi, basically. No, it's not. (laughs) I have to say I don't, and I'm not a man, and I don't necessarily agree with her characterizations so much. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, no, uh, you I, know. yeah, I can see it both ways. So yeah, no, I get it. I was just kind of making a really bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, Continue. And, well, I guess this is just uh, your personality will influence the way that you see history. It just will. So that's like a very, very clear explanation of that. One historian sees the same facts a different mm-hmm. way than the other one does. Um, The thing I like the most about Bissell's work is that his book includes descriptions of the lost paintings or the misattributed paintings. As of 1999, there's been a lot more uncovered since then. So, but at least there's a section on lost works. So if you're ever in a frat house in Delaware (laughs) and you see one of these on the wall. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. And then. um, Give give the guys a six pack of beer to buy it and. Take it to Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> yes. So um, the most recent book I have, this is from 2016. Can't get much more recent than that. Artemisia Gentileschi, The Language of Painting by Jesse Locker. And he is beginning to dig more into the Naples years. There's hardly any childhood at all. And he specifically does not talk about the attack because he figures, well, and as we all like, well, there's plenty of other places to get that information. He wanted to go into more of the literary aspects of her life, her relationships with other artists. His book is super good at comparing elements of different painters' views of the same subjects. Or he'll show different paintings using the same technique. Or people that copied Artemisia's work. Or people that copied Caravaggio's work. or It's mm-hmm. just really good. There's a lot of pictures that compare and contrast different things. And I'm going to say that is the same guy in that lecture that we both watched on YouTube. Yes. I'll put it on uh, the show notes. But you can see what exactly what you just said. That comparing the different works of people... You could see it on that. You know, it was a video recording of a lecture, but I thought it was excellent. I would love to hear him speak in person. And then um, the last nonfiction book I wanted to reference is called Renaissance Lives Portrait of an Age by Thomas Rabb. And it's from 1993. And the thing I liked about it was now this is a shorter one where Artemisia is simply a chapter in this book. But what I do like about it is you get a context, like almost like a fly eye view of the time in which she lived. So mm-hmm. it's just like different biographies of different people that were operating. Even Galileo, you know, her friend is in there. So I really liked that one. I have one more nonfiction. Okay. Uh, there, there's Orazio and Artemisia Gentileschi by Keith Christensen and Judith Mann. And it's the, their story combined. So I do have a fiction book here. It's called Artemisia, a novel by Alexandra Lapierre. I would read the biography 
or at least have listened to this show. So check, you're done before you read this book. Because <laughs> it, they, it just out of necessity, you have to fill in some holes in a novel. And there's because there's so many holes. It was a good book. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah um, I agree. And I'm so excited because I read the other one. Susan Vreeland, The Passion of Artemisia. And uh, same thing, you know, listen, know, know the story because of the, all those holes. But man, this was such a fast read. This story has it all, doesn't it? Sex, uh-huh. violence, intrigue, uh-huh. family disputes. Yeah, they should make a movie about it. Oh, wait, they did. Ah, uh, I mean, 10 <laughs> points for that segue, really. In 1998, Artemisia, the movie, uh, was made. It's a French film and I don't speak French so I actually didn't watch it and I probably wouldn't have because any reviews that I read just made me mad because it appears that the relationship between Artemisia and Tassi was extremely romanticized and I watched a little bit of it on YouTube so I don't know that I would recommend that movie, but it was made and it opens up, uh, you know, somebody else to make a movie because, like you said, it has everything. Because I don't think you need to see more than the trailer to know the boyfriend in question is not Mr. Francesco of the money and affection. No, it is supposed to be Tossie. So, yes, super offensive, I think. Yeah, I thought so, too. I mean, there's Um, things you can edit, but that's not the thing you need. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you're allowed to take a little generous hand with some stuff, but why? Why, why, why? And I think it was a woman that directed it. I, I don't know. I didn't write that down. But anyway, okay. There was, however, a documentary, A Woman Like That. Um, a freelance filmmaker found inspiration from Artemisia as a freelance artist. So she travels the world trying to find some of the paintings. And what she also does is she has some art historians on it that talk about Artemisia's life and her art. And she has fans of Artemisia's that recreate the paintings so they can feel what it felt like for Judith to be holding that sword. I thought it was really well done. It's on Vimeo. It's well worth the five bucks um, to download it and watch it. I will say when you're downloading it, make sure you don't hit those button that says for uh, college use because that's a $400 version. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So don't don't do that. But I I really liked this movie. I I thought it was really great. There's also a TV documentary on BBC4, Michael Palin, yes, of Monty Python, Michael Palin's Quest for Artemisia that is also very good. And in addition to that, if you haven't seen Michael Palin's other documentaries, there's Around the World in 80 Days, there's Pole to Pole, which I would start with, where he goes from the North Pole to the South Pole and meets people along the way. He is a surprisingly good documentarian. I've always thought so, but if you only know him from Monty Python, the fact that he's covering Artemisia might be quite surprising. But um, So don't miss those other two because he really is quite um, splendid in all those others too. Oh, I love that you're geeking out over a particular documentarian. That's awesome. <laughs> There's okay. also a okay, painting good. by Kathleen. Uh, I'd like to say her name's Gilly. Um, G-I-L-J-E. You pronounce that. It's an homage to Artemisia Susanna. As if... It had been x-rayed and found an underpainting of what Artemisia was really thinking. There's great violence in the x-ray. That doesn't really exist. It's part of the current artwork. Am I explaining that right? Yes. And I'm like so fascinated. I did not see that. And now I want to look it up. So we'll get, we'll get you that. <laughs> okay. 
podcast. I am going to geek out about this podcast. Ordinarily, I don't listen to podcasts about subjects that I know we're going to cover or as part of research. I just, I won't do it. But this one came at it at a different angle. So I listened to, it's a, the first year of this show. It's called Art History Babes. The it, Art History Babes. Do you listen to it? I do. Oh my gosh. I love this show. I mean, if you like us, you will love them. It's four grad students who are majoring in different types of visual media. They drink wine and they conversationally discuss art, but they have the coolest names for their episodes. It's like Bad Boys of the Baroque and Cube Your Enthusiasm. And I love this one, The Joy of Podcasting with Bob Ross. <laughs> they have one about Artemisia and they have one about Frida Kahlo, who if you listen to the Frida Kahlo episode, go listen because you get a totally different perspective. And they love Frida Kahlo. They really got excited. I subscribed right away because I love this show. So speaking of podcasts, since we ourselves could not cover Caravaggio completely, here's what I think you should do. You should go to a podcast called History on Fire by a man named Daniel Bolelli. He has a delightful Italian accent and a delightful way about him. Sometimes he says funny stuff that is so dry. I don't know if he realizes how how freaking cute he is. I hope he does. But he has an episode on Caravaggio that is quite good. And so I really advocate listening to that too. Could we just do tripod right now since we're talking about podcasts? We always tell you at the end of every show, if you liked what you heard today, tell a few friends, right? We tell you that. So <laughs> believe it or not, four out of five people in America, uh, have never listened to a podcast. Isn't that shocking? That I mean, that totally surprised me. They don't know. So if you're the one that's listening to us, you have at least four friends who have never listened to a podcast. They might not actually know how to listen to a podcast, which is a question that we get quite frequently. You know, how do I listen to your show? So during the month of March, and actually you should just do this all the time, it's called Tripod. Hashtag Tripod on Twitter. And just tell your friends about shows that you think they would like. Not our show, if you, you know, unless you do, but any show, it doesn't matter. Something that you think they would like, help them if they don't know how to listen to a show, how to subscribe, how to get the apps on their phone, whatever. Help them do that so that they too can become podcast listeners. And that is tripod hashtag T R Y. P-O-D, not oh, tripod. Yeah. Like. yeah, you'll get a bunch of, if you if you search that hashtag, you get like all those dogs that only have three legs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was thinking photography, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little assignment for you. We don't normally give out such specific ones, but um, we really think that's kind of a shame, really. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to hashtag tripod art history, babes. There you go. And you can hashtag tripod history on fire. I will do it. Oh, I love that guy. <laughs> yes, he is adorable. Okay, so I have some some other things here. Um, number one, the link to the lecture about purportedly, I mean, the theme of the lecture was that the museum in Portland had, for the first time, shown a picture of Cleopatra, the death of Cleopatra, as a painting by Artemisia Gentileschi. It had previously been misattributed. And so his lecture was about, well, how do you, how do you go about examining? What, are the, what is the evidence that you use to determine who painted a painting that's not signed, that you don't have any written description of, no order from the client, no journal entry? We have nothing. So what do we do going forward? It ends up being 
quite a lovely record of Artemisia's work and mm-hmm. delightful comparisons to other artists of the same era. Mm-hmm. So we highly recommend that. And it's about an hour 40, an hour 30. And you can't drive while you, I mean, you cannot, you can try. You can't because all you'll hear is, and then in this next one, and you'll want in your car to look down and don't do it. So listen to that one at home. <laughs> Don't listen to that one in the car. Um, Let's see. What else do I have? There's an article about a lost painting or stolen since they, quote, found it in a private collection in France in the 1930s, which to (laughs) me means it was liberated from a Jewish collector. That's Uh I mean, that's what that means to me. That's exactly what it meant to me, too. Yeah. Uh, it was a it's a Magdalene that has just recently been found. There is a current exhibition in Rome going through the end of May. We'll give you a link to that. It's called Artemisia Gentileschi and Her Times. And it is currently happening. So if you are a European traveler or indeed a European resident, you can go check that out. Yeah, and I think there was a traveling art show too of her. So I think the more people find out about her, um, the more there's going to be shows like that because she's really awesome. I have one weird thing that I want to say. Okay. And we've never really done this before, but, um, I just want, this is totally coded, uh, whatever. Um, I want to give a special hello to Anna and the rest of the Winkensburg public library in my former hometown city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hello, Anna. Okay. Uh, that's a secret. I don't know what that means either. Okay. So, uh, so hi, everybody. Hello. So the, I have the explanation of the Apocrypha that we talked about earlier that I, you know, I don't want to get into um, Bible history. I just don't have enough time um, to cover all the things that he covers. So there's an explanation of the whys and where to fours of what happened there. I have a British Museum page for that painting, The Right Hand of Artemisia Gentileschi, that homage from her friend. And then um, the Queen's House Museum. The Queen's House in Greenwich has a a very, very good um, history of that museum. That's the place where Artemisia and her father had painted the ceiling piece. Now, the piece is gone, but the museum remains, and it is a... I don't know. It's a little side rabbit hole for you to go down. Awesome. I have nothing else. You know, I just have a link to that Thomas Hart Benton, 1938, Susanna. Oh, also, get this. Gustav Klimt did Judith and the Head of Holofernes. And I have seen this picture. It's called Judith, and it's from 1901. And I have seen it a thousand times, and probably you have too. And you just don't notice that part of that guy's head over there to the bottom right. That's Holofernes' (laughs) head. And I never saw it before. I never. I'm so familiar with that painting. Like, you know, you just see her face and you know, oh, I know who that, who did that. Same guy that did the kiss, you know, that guy. Everything oh, yeah. is. So we'll have to post that too, because I was literally flabbergasted. <laughs> when oh, I realized, who's, the artist? who's the artist? Gustav Klimt. K-L-I-M-T. K-L-I-M-T. I've got it in my things. Oh. I'll just send it to you. But yeah, I, well, I, I just want to see. Oh my God, there's his head. <laughs> see what That's I'm awesome. saying? Okay, this is kind of a cool painting. I kind of like this. All right. I'm going to close with a couple of quotes from Artemisia Gentileschi herself. As she wrote to Galileo, quote, I have seen myself honored by all the kings and rulers of Europe, and my paintings will eventually serve to provide the evidence of my fame. Now, it's taken hundreds of years, 
but I do believe her prediction is about to come true. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, we have a challenge for you. Go to Twitter and tell the world about your favorite podcast by using the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. And also, make sure to come see us on Pinterest. The board for Artemisia is particularly important so you can see the art we've been talking about. The end song is Picture by Xavier and Ophelia. Picture how your nights would be Softly as the moonlight falls on the trees Picture all the dreams you'll keep Breathing freely Every night's a picture, girl, you believe Picture how your days would be darkest